what is revival? Now, depending on kind of how you grew up, if you didn't grow up in church, it may not mean anything to you. Um, if you grew up in maybe a specific kind of church, uh, you may have had revivals throughout. And my grandparents, um, they used to hold these things called tent revivals. And tent revivals where they would, they would put a tent in a town and they would invite the whole town out to come and to hear some preachers speak and to, to worship and maybe receive some kind of healing. And, and everybody would come and people would come to Jesus and it was these uh, revival meetings. My grandfather used to travel around the United States and he would preach at these revival meetings. And they have a, an important history in, um, in my family because this is actually what kind of changed the trajectory of my family's um, family's life and the generations that come is my great-grandmother became a Christian at one of these tent revivals. She was on her deathbed, and they wheeled her out there. This is kind of her last hope, and she said, God, if you're there, heal me. He did. She became a Christian. Uh, later on, her husband became a Christian and a pastor, and then there's been generations of pastors ever since, and so um, whether you come from a tradition that has had revivals or talked about revival, um, I, I wanted to spend a couple weeks just discussing what is a revival, what does it mean? Do we need one? If we do, how does that happen? And so revival, I think, at, at the core uh, is when God shows up in a really powerful and an intense way, that he reveals himself, that he begins to shake people to their very souls. And maybe it's a, it's a group of people, maybe it's a whole region, maybe it's an entire country, but it's something that God does, and he does it in a really intense way. He begins to move people. Something powerful takes place, and people, I think, um, I think the result is one of three things. Sleepy Christians are awoken. Now, I don't know if there's any sleepy Christians in here or not, but uh, I consider myself a sleepy Christian sometimes. And it's this Christian which is, yeah, I'm a Christian, yes, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and we've kind of fallen asleep a little bit. We kind of become a little bit apathetic. Oh, we come on Sundays, we do our thing, but we, we don't have the faith that we once had. And then there's these uh, nominal Christians, and nominal Christians become real Christians. Nominal Christian is someone who says, by name, I'm a Christian, but doesn't actually know this Jesus, doesn't know the God uh, of the scriptures. And so they realize, I don't know this God, and they actually come into a relationship with him. And then, of course, during revival, there is people who have no faith at all, and they come into a saving relationship with Christ. And so that's my prayer, and I've been praying this for a while now, and I'm pretty passionate about seeing some type of revival take place, at least in this church. I would love to see a revival take place, and I know it can happen because it's happened throughout uh, church history. It's happened throughout the scriptures. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about different examples of, of revivals and what we can learn from them, but... One of the probably more famous ones in, in modern history uh, took place in the 1700s. And you maybe have heard of his name before. It's John Wesley. He had a brother, Charles, that was also involved, and, and another guy named George Whitfield. And, and they decided that they wanted to see God move in Europe. And so they began to pray, and they began to seek God, and asking God to show up in a really significant way, and to revive the church, and to, to bring dead people to life that, that spiritually do not know God. And so as they began to pray this, and they began to travel the entire country, 250,000 miles on horseback, John Wesley himself preached 40,000 sermons and God started to do something significant. He started to move people's hearts and minds. And in fact, the entire country was taken over by this renewal of their faith. Now, you fast forward a couple hundred years in the 1940s, and, and uh, there was a, a college professor. His name was Dr. Orr. He taught at a school called Wheaton. It's in the Midwest in Illinois. And, 
and he was teaching some theology students, and so they took a trip to Oxford to do some studies, and while they were on that trip, they decided to visit John Wesley's house. And they're given a tour because it's been made into a museum because of the impact that he had on that country and, and even in the United States. And as they were touring the house, they came to his bedroom, and next to his bed were these two very worn patches where his knees were planted for hours at a time next to his bed where he would pray. He would pray that God would use him in order to bring a revival. And so as they're taking the tour, they, they go past the room and everybody gets on the bus and, and, and Dr. Orr realizes that there's a student missing. And so he goes back in to find this student and he finds a student on his knees in those very imprints praying, Lord, do it again and use me. Lord, do it again. And he said, Billy, it's time to get up and it's time to get back on the bus. And if you don't know who Billy is, Billy is Billy Graham, who led a whole generation of people to Christ. And he said, simple prayer, Lord, use me, do it again. You've done it before and you can do it again. And if I think about the time in which Billy Graham in the 40s was praying this prayer, and I think about where we've come uh, since then, if Billy Graham needed a revival, I think we need a revival. I think about culture, I think about where, where society has gone. And look, I'm not a the sky is falling kind of guy, and I think I'm pretty heads up on what's happened in the world. I, I know what's going on. And and as I see where we're heading, the world has always been messy. People are messy. Sin in the world, it's always, been, it's always been a mess. I get that. But I don't think we're heading in the right direction. I would say that our culture is probably a mess, and it's getting messier by the day. And if you don't believe this, um, maybe you should try this. And this is kind of something I found myself doing on a regular basis is, uh, and I'll clean this up for church, is... I will see something or I will hear something and I will go in my mind and sometimes out loud, what the, what? What are you, you thought that was a good idea? You thought, look, I do stupid stuff all the time, but when I can recognize how dumb that idea is, you are, you're way off, you're way off the path. You're, you're, you're a mess because I see on a consistent basis us making decisions as a culture and as individuals in which I just think, who thought this was a good idea? Things that we used to condemn are now encouraged. Things that, that we, we used to say will never happen are now being discussed. Things that we once said we will never touch are now being celebrated. And so as I look at the direction that society is heading in, I think, you know, we're kind of getting, getting off track. Not just a little bit, but a lot. Here's, here's my most recent example. A guy came into the office, and uh, he gave us a packet of um, the sex education curriculum for California, of what they proposed. And I, you know, I, I don't research this stuff. I, sure, whatever. And I just assumed I grew up in public school in this, you know, in these schools. And my wife's from L.A. She grew up in public schools there. I'm pretty heads up. Like, I know what's going on. I know what we're going to discuss. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I kind of get it. And I started reading through what they're going to be teaching my children and maybe it's because I'm a father, I take this more serious, but I started teaching it and I, I was blushing a little bit because of what they were suggesting they were going to be discussing with the kids and then the visuals that went along with it and some of the activities um, that they were gonna be participating in. And as I looked at those, I thought, in what world is this a good idea? Because, okay, there's a show, it's called Stranger Things and there's this, uh, the Upside Down. And I sometimes think, am I living in the Upside Down right now? Is there, are we all saying, seeing the same thing? I have those what the moments. And I think I could probably, and you could too, you could go example after example of looking at things that are taking place in society and if we're being real honest in our own lives and we go, we need something to change. 
We really need something to change because revival is not something that we can just make happen. Revival is something that God does and we prepare for. And so revival is a, a movement of God and we can't force God to move. He's gonna move when he wants to move, but there is things that we can do. There is a ways that we can prepare. If we want God to rain down fire, we're gonna have to build the altar first. And so there is a part that we play in this whole deal, that we want revival to come and we are gonna be a part of it and we are gonna be prepared for it. Now, some of you guys are, are here and you're thinking, I brought a friend this weekend and this is how it's gonna go, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. If you're visiting with us, we have treats for you, you'll walk it off, all right? But yes, we are gonna have some old school church in here, all right? Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah, there it is. See, you can talk back. You can talk back, not that much, but a little bit, you know? Like you can throw out some, okay, I hear you, you know? Let me hear it, anybody? And then second, third, fourth row, thank you. I hear you, all right. Amen, can I get it over here from Royal Family? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. All right, where was I? Oh yeah, we're about to get in your kitchen. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Scripture is full of examples of revivals. And in the coming weeks, we're gonna be talking about those. And I wanna look at one today that takes place in the Old Testament. And it's probably the greatest revival um, that we see in the Old Testament. Now, um, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, real quick, cliff notes. You have the nation of Israel. This is a group of people that God has raised up and he's uh, using in a very specific way. He is gonna reveal himself to them. And then through them, he's gonna bless the entire world. And so he raises up this group of people and he has this unique relationship with them. And he says, look, if you will continue to be faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you do not, if you decide to worship other things, if you decide to start living crazy, then I'm going to have to discipline you in order to get you back on track. And it's the Old Testament is just this constant cycle of God blesses, people get cocky, they start going off the tracks, he has to discipline, they repent, God blesses again, right? And it's this whole constant cycle. And so um, Israel goes through this for a few hundred years, and eventually they go way off the rails, so much so that the kingdom splits in half and you have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south and God is disciplining them harshly. Eventually the north, Israel, is wiped off the map. They're gone and all that exists is the south, Judah, and they're just barely hanging on. And so you would think because they've been punished severely for not following God's commands and, and for not worshiping him, that they would get it back together, that they would get things back on track, but of course they don't. And so it's just one bad decision after another, after another. An evil king after evil king is ruling and takes them further and further away from God. But we do see uh, one, one king who arrives on the scene and he leads a revival amongst this rebellion. And he's actually a boy king. His name is Josiah. And if you have your Bibles, we're gonna go to 2 Chronicles 34 and, uh, and we'll, we'll take it from there. It says this, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. So I, I would imagine, I've never been king before, but I would imagine it's a tough gig. And to become king at eight years old has gotta be really tough. Now, we're used to world leaders acting like they're eight, but to be eight, that's gotta be tough. Was that political for you? I didn't call anyone, I just, they're all, okay, fine. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his ancestor David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. There's a saying I heard recently, it's that God only serves revival on clean plates. 
If you want a revival within your own life, if you want to wake up spiritually, if you want to stop being apathetic, if you want your family to turn around, if you want the church to light on fire, it has to begin with holiness. It's always a call back to holiness. Israel was always called back to getting right with God and to start acting right. And so one of the first steps in order to prepare ourselves for revival is we have to get right with God. It begins with holy living. First Peter 1.14 says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I don't hear a lot of people talking about holiness. I don't think that's a part of our vocabulary as Christians is I want to be holy. I want to live as a holy person. I want to pursue holiness. I want to become like Jesus. But revival begins with a call to, to holiness. And I can already hear the debate because I've had it myself is, well, you know, there's this tension. You know, you don't want to be legalistic. And so then you kind of, kind of veer towards liberty. And so I call this the tension between legalism and liberty. Legalism says... If I do the right things, if I follow God's commandments, then he's going to love me and I'll be accepted. That's not the gospel. But then liberty is, well, because I'm only forgiven because of what Jesus has done for me and the gift that he has given me, then I'm at liberty to go and live how I want to. And I would say that both of those are an error. The answer is, is not liberty and it's not legalism, it's love. I have been forgiven and it has been a gift that I do not deserve, and so therefore I follow his commandments. It is, a, it is an outworking of the forgiveness I have received that I want to become more like him, that I want to follow his commands. I'm not earning anything, it's because I've been given something. Simple observation that I've made is uh, in my own life, and in, I, I think I would say, and I'm gonna generalize, I would say in a lot of Christian families these days is um, to really veer towards Christian liberty and fight legalism. And what I mean by this is, in generations past, I think that a lot of people in the church have struggled with legalism, meaning we can't do this and we're against X, Y, and Z, and so therefore, so example of this would be uh, my, my grandfather, incredible man, lived an incredible life, but I think one of the areas that he might have been a little bit off in was he was legalistic in some, sort, in some ways. So uh, my dad would tell me that growing up, they weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. Doesn't matter what movie you were gonna see, you can't step foot in that place. Bunch of heathens go there, right? And so like today, when I go to see Toy Story 4, because I'm blessed like that, um, I would be sinning according to him. Now, I, I think he's an error. I think that, that, that's legalism. But if we're being honest, and again, I'm generalizing, I think the large majority of Christian families these days do not struggle with legalism. They struggle with liberty. They struggle with abusing the liberties that they've been given. That, that we, can, we constantly say because we've been forgiven, then we don't have to be bound by the law, but that's not what Christ said. He did not say that he came to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. I, uh, I have a constant conversation with my, parent, or with, my, with my kids as a parent. I have to tell them, why they are not allowed to do what their friends do. Even at a young age, there's little kids, and, and we're constantly, on a weekly basis, here's why you can't go watch that movie. Here's why you can't go to this place. Here's why you can't say those kinds of words. Here's why we're so busy on the weekends. Here's why, because we're Christians. We follow Jesus, and so we do things differently than maybe other families do. I want them to get that in their head that they are going to be different, that we live a different life because as Christians, our calling is to come out, to be set apart, to be in the world but not of the world, that we are supposed to be different than everyone else. 
And so I want them to see our family. We're different. We're, we're, we're not going to be like other families. And I think it's going to turn out really good that way, but you're just going to have to trust that when, you, when your friends are doing something that you don't get to do, it's because we're different than them. We've been set apart. This is... Um, this has kind of been, I've seen this pattern in my own life through my, my family as my parents growing up, um, and this is a decision that they made, and I'm not saying that you have to make this, and I want to clarify, but they decided, and this has uh, happened for a few generations, is that we won't have alcohol in our house. And you might say, well, that's legalistic. And I would say, You're, no, I'm not telling you, you, can, you cannot, do you have the liberty to drink? Don't get drunk. Jesus drank, but he didn't get drunk, okay? Like, we've talked about that before. We get it, all right? But because my parents wanted to be set apart, they knew that the culture that we live in is obsessed with alcohol, that there are so many people coming through these doors that battle addiction that we're just not even going to touch it. We want to be different. We want to be different than everybody around us. Not because it's wrong, but because we want to make sure that we're as far away from the cliff as we can be. Because a lot of Christians, they like to say, you know what, I'm going to live as close to the cliff as I can and try not to fall off. And we're going, why? Why? Why risk it, right? And so we, as a family, we've decided, and I made this rule in our house, is we're just not going to have alcohol. Again, this is, not, this is not you. This is me. And the reason is because we want to be different. I remember uh, when I was little, my parents told me this story as we saw one of our friends in the grocery store, and uh, he was very involved in church. He was a leader, and, and I looked into his cart, and again, I'm a little kid. I didn't really understand, but he had a, a pack of beer in there. And I looked at him and I said, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> you know, and how are you going to explain to like a little kid, well, you know, I have a liberty to, he's like, I'm not drinking anymore. That's it. I'm done. And that was the last drink that he had because he said, you're right. Because here was, here's what he realized. As a leader, I don't want other people who are in the community to look at me and go, why does he have a 24-pack in his, they don't know if he's drinking that at one time or if he's drinking it throughout the week or, or what's going on. And he just said, it's not worth it for me. I'm not going to do it. I want to stay away from that. I, I, and this is, this, is what, um, this is what Romans says. Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Saying, look, if, yeah, you have the liberty, you have the freedom to do lots of different things as a Christian, but don't, don't make other people stumble because of what you eat or you drink or you wear or the language that you use or the things that you watch or you have the freedom to do it, but you may not participate in that freedom for the sake of holiness so that other people can pursue holiness and you do not become a stumbling block. So for Josiah, this was difficult because um, not only was he surrounded by a culture that did not have the same values, but he had what I like to refer to as the generational curse. His father and his grandfather not only neglected God, but they totally rejected it. They closed the temple doors. They would sacrifice idols. In fact, his grandfather was incredibly evil. He sacrificed his own children to these idols. And so he had to decide, I'm not only going to be different than the culture, I'm going to be different than my very own family. And you may have something like this, where you have these patterns of behaviors, you have these thoughts, you have these habits that you have inherited from your parents, and it's been for generations, and you're saying, you know what, as I pursue a life of holiness, I'm going to have to break these family of origin issues. I'm going to be the first that's not getting a divorce. I'm going to have to break this addiction because my dad, my grandfather, they were not able to. I'm going to be the first one that sticks around to see my kids grow up. I'm going to have to break these generational curses. In the eighth year of his reign, 
While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his ancestor David. In the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places. And so he begins to implement this change throughout the entire kingdom. He says, we're taking those down, and then actually we're going to reopen the temple. We're going to get all those cobwebs out of there. And so he sends some guys to work on the temple. As they're cleaning it out, they discover something. Here's what they find. It says this, and we're going to skip down to 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord. They had been given through Moses. So they're cleaning out the temple, and they thought because um, his grandfather had destroyed all of the scriptures that it was gone, and yet they recovered the Bible. They found it. We thought that this thing has been lost, and yet here it is. And here's the image that I get, is I get Josiah, and he's handed this book that he's heard about before, and it's just dusty, and he's opening it up, and it hasn't been read in who knows how long, and he's discovering the words of the scriptures. And we're going to find out what he reads in a second. But this, unfortunately, I think is an image that a lot of our families are going to have. So that's what a Bible looks like. I saw that on the bookshelf for a long time. You kept that on the coffee table. It's been collecting a lot of dust, mom and dad, but that's what the Bible is. Is that too close to home? Oh, I didn't hear any amens on that one. All right. (laughs) See, I think one of the greatest failures as parents is to fail to pass on our faith. You cannot force your kids to believe anything, but you can do everything within your power to try to pass on this faith, including the scriptures. One of the greatest failures of Josiah's father and grandfather was their rejection of God and failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. And we are doing everything in our power as a church to not fall prey to that, that we will make this a place where kids and families and students love to be because we will pass on this faith. They can reject it, but it's not because they didn't know. 29 says this, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearings all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. So what happens is Josiah rediscovers the scriptures and we eventually find that as he's reading them, he realizes that they have been doing this all wrong, that they have been way off track, that the reason why they're experiencing so much turmoil as a nation is because God is disciplining them. So they go and they ask for some advice from a priest in town who knows a little bit more about scriptures and they find out, yeah, you better turn this boat around or it's gonna sink. And so they do, he repents, the king repents, which is a huge part of revival. And then he says, now the rest of these people need to know this. And so he begins to share the word of the Lord with the entire nation saying, look, this is what you need to know about God. This is what you need to know about life. And this is what we do when we find something that we're passionate about, right? Is is we want other people to know. So uh, in the last three weeks, I have been to a restaurant four times because I discovered it and I have taken different people there every time. I go, this new place is open. It has fried chicken. I'm taking you. Let's roll, right? Because that's what we do. I, when I discover something, I'm like, dude, you got me and my dad, this is gross. I didn't say this in any other uh, services, but you're, you know, we'll give it to you guys. We love the pimple popper videos, and we will send them back and forth all the time. Like, bro, I hope you haven't had any cream cheese or cottage cheese today after you watch. Like, I see people getting nauseous. Amen. Okay. Just making sure you're awake. Just making sure you're awake. Let me end with this, because I only have a couple minutes. I want, you to, I want you to take away two things. You hear nothing else, hear these two things. First is this, is if we want to see revival that 
it has to begin with us rediscovering the scriptures. For Josiah, it was literally finding the scriptures again. We find, if we fast forward a little bit, Ezra, they're back from being exiled in Babylon, and he begins to teach the people who have never heard about the scriptures. They begin to rediscover their faith. We see this throughout the, the New Testament. Jesus rises on the scene, and he says to the Pharisees, you've been reading this all wrong. You need to go back and look at this faith thing again. He says to the New Testament writers, you need to revisit these passages because they were pointing to this person of Jesus. We, every generation, need to rediscover discover the scriptures. Jonathan Edwards says that the thing that sparked this movement, this great awakening that we see in early America was the rediscovering of two passages in Romans. And it was that faith is not through effort or earning, that is purely a gift from God that you are receiving through faith. And that was the spark that brought a great awakening through the early Americas. Every generation has to discover the scriptures, has to revisit them, has to relearn them, has to understand the impact that they have. And here's a couple of ways that I know that we need to rediscover is because one, 82% of Americans believe God helps those who help themselves is actually in the Bible. And 82% of you just went, it isn't? <laughs> right? No, it's not in there. You see, here's the thing, is we have become, and you know, we're just gonna, we're gonna lay it all out there today. We have become biblically illiterate as a church, not just this church, America. We don't know the scriptures. You come here, and let's be honest, the only time that you read the Bible is when it's up on this screen, and I'm reading it to you. I could be making this up up here, and you would never know. I could go, yeah, it's the book of Hezekiah, and uh, it says, and you would go, I don't know, that's what it says. I don't, you know, Old Testament, it's not really my thing, right? You would know. I could be making this up. I'd tell you all the time, it's from the book of Cody. I don't even have to say that. You'd just be like, oh, that sounds good to me. All right, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, there's no book of Cody, she says. <laughs> Correct. And the reason is not because we don't have access to the scriptures. It's because we are apathetic. We don't care. You have access to the Bible right now. I will give you a Bible. You have it on your phone. You can Google it. You can get any translation and commentary that you want, and yet we refuse to open it, which is mind-boggling. And look, I'm in the same boat as you. I have gotten so apathetic to this book that I have to force myself to read it, which is mind-boggling. Think about this. Is if God sent you a text message right now, would you go, yeah, maybe tomorrow, clear? No, you would go, what? <laughs> this is crazy. God just sent me a text message. I cannot wait to read and see what he has to say to me. But when it comes to the scriptures, we go, I'm not a reader. <laughs> you read text messages, right? This is like a lot of text messages. <laughs> it's... I read an article this week about Christians in China who are being put into prison for their faith and they know that they're going to go to prison for their faith and so they secretly will um, they secretly will get a Bible and they will spend day in and day out reading this thing and memorizing every word because they know that it will eventually get taken away from them they will get thrown in prison and they want to have it with them and so they will memorize this day in and day out so that they will always have the scriptures on their heart they will always have access to it there's people, William Tyndale, maybe you've heard of him before. He literally went and translated the scriptures so that you and I could understand them. And then he printed them. He gave them out in masses. And for it, he got put on a stake and burned. And we're going, you know, Will, I'd rather watch Netflix. Thanks for your help. That's crazy. 
How are we ever going to know what we are, if we are being fed lies if we don't know what the truth is? How are we supposed to tell our kids that's not the way that we work, that's not the way that God created us, that's not the way that we are supposed to live if we don't know what the truth of this is? How, how are we ever supposed to fight the lies, the insecurities that we have, the things that we're being told on a regular basis? How are we ever supposed to fight those things if we don't know what's in here? It's because we have to begin to consume this thing. It says that we are not to live by bread alone, but by what? Thank you. We are supposed to be living on this. This is supposed to be our nutrients. This is supposed to be the thing that feeds our very souls, and yet we don't have time for it. Look, I'm not here to condemn you. I get it. I am in the same boat as you. I have to wake up. But that is the enemy trying to keep us from the truth. And we have to engage this. We have to daily come to this thing and say, Lord, speak to me. Here's the vision that I would have for this church. Is that there would be people who would walk in here every weekend, whether they got a Bible, they got a Bible app, whatever it is, and they come in here and they don't go with their arms crossed and go, you better say something funny, Pastor. Dance. Let's go. (laughs) No. They come in here going, can you believe this? The God of the universe wrote this message to me, and I get to hear it today. Tell me what I'm going to learn today, God. I think it would be incredible to walk in and see people who are passionate about this, who just come. I had somebody come to me, and I know I'm over time, but whatever. I, I have... I had someone come to me this week, and you've had this experience. If you've, if you've, been, if you've read the Bible, is you read it, and you just go, what just happened? Did God know that I needed that? It's like I read it, and it, I think it said my name in there. I'm not sure. I think my name was in there. I just, I love it. Someone came to me this week. He goes, I have to tell you this story. I'm like, I've heard it, but go ahead. Let's go. You know, like, this is in the Bible. And I'm like, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? right? And it's because they're learning for the first, they're going, this is amazing. Can you believe that my problems, the answer are in here? How did they know? You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. So let me end with this, and I'm going to end with this every week, is as we're talking about revival, we have to realize this, that revival is always going to begin with you. If you want a revival in your family, in this community, in this church, your prayer needs to become, Lord, bring a revival and let it begin with me. And so my my prayer is that you would come and that you would join us in that prayer. As a staff, we've been praying this for months now. We've been fasting and we've been praying, Lord, bring revival to this church and bring it into me first because I want it to overflow and I want people to feel it and to see it because I can't teach them. I can't tell them. I I can't make them do anything. This is all you, God. Only you can change our hearts. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would bring revival and that you would let it begin with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need revival. As we see uh, the culture around us making some really poor decisions, as we see in our own families, in our own lives, as we look at and we're being honest with ourselves, we look at the apathy and we look at the destructive habits that we have and we need a revival, Lord God. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our children and our grandchildren, Lord God. We don't want this faith to be something that we are apathetic about. We want it to be something that changes our lives and the world around us. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would bring revival. 
And let it begin with each one of us. That is our prayer, that is the cry of our hearts, is that you would come and that you would ignite this passion within us so that we can know you and that other people can come into a saving relationship with you. And so, Lord God, we come and we beg that you would show up. Lord, we love you, we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.